With 22 track records, this Corvette C5 behind me is one of the fastest time attack cars in the US. We're here with Ferris, the owner and driver of this car, to find out a little bit more about what makes it so fast. Welcome to High Performance Academy's Tuned In Field Report podcast series. In these special midweek episodes, we look back through our archives to find the best conversations we've had through years worth of attending the best automotive events across the globe. We've pulled the audio from these tech-filled interviews with some of the industry's most well-known figures and presented it in podcast format for you to enjoy as a quick hit of insider knowledge. So it's got quite the resume of wins and track records and I'm guessing starting from a base standard C5 Corvette, there's a lot of changes that needed to be made. Power, aero, it's got all of that. Let's start with the power plant though. What have you put into this particular car? So power-wise, we have a LME-built 2,000 horsepower package. It's a uh, RHS block, 427, uh, Cali's crank, Cali's rod, diamond pistons, brodick heads. So... LS based, but with a cast iron block? Uh, no, it's actually aluminum block. So an aftermarket aluminum block? Though. Yeah, RHS block. It's six bolts. So so what you're trying to do in terms of power-wise, would you be able to do this on the factory alloy block or you're beyond the reliable point of that? So we've been, we tried, and we just were lifting heads left and right. So that's what got us to the six-bolt block because just all the crankcase pressure, everything that was just causing us to lift the heads. But... At 900-ish horsepower, it kind of survived on factory, but we're running the car for, you know, minutes at a time and, you know, instead of like a drag race scenario where they just make a pass or something. Yeah, it's, it's not a, a, a dyno queen or, or a drag car. This, this is being beaten up on hard for extended periods of time while still making upwards of 1,000 horsepower, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's what, you know, has kind of been the, the chores, you know, all the parts and aftermarket, you know, companies we've used they don't normally have their parts ran for that amount of time. So when we run the car for 15 minutes at a time, running on a thousand horsepower, it's been the chore to make everything live. One of the big issues when we're making a lot of power is heat rejection, just physically getting the heat out of the, the engine. And I'm not just talking about coolant. There's also the air temperature from the turbochargers with intercooling that needs to be considered. That can be a, a challenge. So talk us through, first of all, in terms of the coolant side of things, what have you done with the cooling system there? Oh, yeah. Major uh, downside to running that much power is all the heat. So for one, like you had mentioned earlier, you know, the, the turbos outside of the car, not in the engine bay helps just like reject some of that heat that the turbos are adding. But as far as actual coolant side of it, we've had to run two radiators. Uh, so we run a radiator in the front, a radiator in the rear, and then a electric water pump in the center of the car to help push the water back to the front. I found that combination with the factory water pump works the best because now we were having like the front of the, the engine really, really hot where that radiator is and the rear radiator really cold. And so I think it was creating some kind of like a, a air bubble of some sort was having trouble circulating. And now that I put that in the middle of the car, it helps push that back to the front. And we really don't see anything over 185 degrees. That's pretty impressive. Yes. So the, the engine, by the sounds of it now, is, is something that's pretty well tested and proven. You don't need to really worry about that. One of the problems with taking any car out on the racetrack, uh, never mind something with a significant amount of aero, which we'll talk about shortly, is uh, keeping the oiling system intact. And uh, factory wet sumps don't normally work too well under racetrack conditions. Is it safe to assume you've gone dry sump on this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have a four-stage dry sump. 
It's an ARE setup, and uh, I think it's running three stages on on the crank. And the fourth stage being the pressure stage? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, turbocharging. So you already mentioned it's twin turbo, and we can see those turbos, as you mentioned, hanging out in the breeze a little bit yeah. uh, on, the, on the side of the car. Uh, what are the turbos that you're running on at the moment? So they're the Garrett G35 900s. Uh, one's like the standard rotation, the other one's reverse. Okay, so you've sort of got a mirror image set up there. Is that just for aesthetics? Just like the way that they sit, it made it easier to kind of reroute it back towards the front of the car because all the piping goes up and over the, the wheels and then rejoins and then goes into the intake. So having that, like, able to be reverse and standard, that option made it really easy just to, to build the setup. When it comes to turbocharging, it's always a balancing act, choosing a turbocharger that sized correctly to get good boost response while still making the power in the top end that you want. You've got a reasonable amount of capacity on your side here, but still two G35 900s. Is a reasonable size turbochargers. What sort of boost threshold are you seeing at the moment in terms of RPM where you're reaching maximum boost? Yeah, so right around 3,500 is we see when we see full boost, and it carries up to 7,000. Uh, we've experimented with like 25 series, different size 30 series and 35 series, and they all kind of like jump around in that 500, 1,000 uh, RPM range. And 35s just seem to work really, really well with this combination. Once we're up to speed and in our sequential, it just kind of stays in that, that happy sweet spot. I mean, that's one thing that is important to, to sort of mention when you've got a, a six-speed sequential gearbox. Generally, the, the ratios are reasonably tightly packed together. So uh, once you're sort of up and moving, you, you don't tend to drop too low in the RPM range. So I'd imagine 3,500 to 7 is a pretty wide power band anyway. Now, in terms of boost pressure and power, what, what is it running? So on low boost right now, we have it about 780. And then on high, we have 1,300. And what are those actual boost pressures? So the 780 is like 8 pounds of boost and about 20 pounds for the 1300. So you're not still really leaning on them that hard, but obviously the, the power numbers are there. That's what you need. I can imagine that this car, despite the aero, would still be a bit of a handful in the lower speed corners. You've got no benefit of four-wheel drive to, to get that power to the ground. Are you using any tricks with the engine management in terms of torque management, boost by gear, boost versus speed, or limitations on throttle opening, anything like that? Yeah, currently not. I mean, we've experimented with it, and I felt that the car you know, was slower. Data show that it was slower, and just giving it to me all the time was kind of what myself and the car wanted as, as a pair. But uh, we do run MoTeC traction control, so that kind of helps aid that you know, initial throttle response when I get all that torque in. But as far as you know, any, cutting anything or limiting any, any boost, we're, we're running all of it. So it's all down to, to your right foot and, and how you apply that. Yeah. Uh, with drive-by-wire throttle, another advantage we've got is the ability to tailor the relationship between the throttle body movement and the driver's right foot. And there can be some tweaking in that that suits some driver's preference a little bit better. Maybe you want a lot of torque initially or you want the torque to come in a little bit later. Are you doing anything with, with mapping the throttle opening? Uh, no, no, we're not mapping it at all. And also the other element that goes along with this is boost control versus throttle because turbocharged engines are so good at making boost. Often that gives limited sort of torque modulation of the throttle. Again, are you just all in there? Yeah, all in. I mean, we just let the V8 spool them up and we just go. All right, let's talk about that engine management. You, you have already mentioned MoTeC. Which specific MoTeC product? Uh, it's the M150. 
Now, there's a lot of advances that have come by in, in modern ECUs. The M150, obviously, is is up there as well. Sort of engine protection strategies, I'm talking here, like warnings or limiters for overtemp for oil pressure, uh, also closed-loop air-fuel ratio control, closed-loop not control, any of those strategies being employed here to, to keep the engine alive? Definitely closed-loop. That is like up to, what, 15% of corrections, and that's vital for a car that's running for that many minutes at a time, right? Things start to change, the heat changes the chemistry of the fuel and, and whatnot. So closed loop we run, and then obviously certain warnings for oil pressure, uh, lights, also limitations. If we do see a sudden drop in oil pressure, it cuts throttle, overboosting. We don't want to see anything that's going to be over, you know, 20 pounds. So if I'm running, you know, 10 pounds and it jumps up to 25, there's a throttle cut. Uh, it's a two-second throttle cut, so it just tells me I typically will turn the map down. Something's not happy. I'll go back around, try again for another lap. I guess you only really get one shot of that with, with Time Attack as well, so it sort of ruins the lap, but hopefully holds the engine together. That's the mentality? Yeah, exactly. You just want it to live, right? So your warnings, your, your securities, your setups just kind of help maintain the car and not literally blow it up. Always frustrating from the driver's seat when something interacts like that and limits your fun, but at the end of the day, it's a cheap way of protecting what is an expensive engine. Now, I I did mention not control. Given that you're running relatively modest boost pressure and and a really good quality fuel, is knock even a consideration in this application? So we see a lot of false knock because of how noisy the sequential is. Running on X98 ethanol, we don't really believe it's it's real detonation or anything like that but there's never been signs of showing that either so we do see some knock activity but nothing over really like 20 percent i would say i think it's important to mention that if you're using a, a donut style bosch knock sensor they are susceptible to mechanical noise yes. and not necessarily mechanical noise that's coming from the engine so false knock unfortunately is something that is a fact of life and something that we as tuners do need to understand and and try and work our way around that sequential gearbox moving back in the car, uh, what have you got running in there and how is that being interacted with or controlled via the MoTeC? Yeah, so it's a PPG 1 to 1 6 gear sequential and MoTeC is controlling all the wide open throttle shifts and all the, the downshifts as well. So I assume there you're using something like a strain gauge gear knob to tell the ECU you're asking for an upshift or a downshift? Yes, yeah, the one that PPG provides as well. So on the upshift, that's easy. We just need a torque reduction. Usually we'll use either an ignition or a fuel cut just to allow the engine torque to reduce enough to unlock the dogs and allow the shift to complete. On the downshift, we need to blip the throttle and match the RPM. Some people prefer to do that with their own foot. Other people like to leave it to the ECU. What's your preference? ECU. I can't be as consistent as the ECU can, and sometimes I'll wait to the last second. And when I do, I'll just jam on the brakes and then downshift three, four times get back on it. I don't think I could physically blip that fast to make that happen. Do you want to take your car knowledge game to the next level? Join us in the next free lesson at hpacademy.com slash free and start developing your own skills today. One of the things that's important to mention here as well is even if we log brake pressure from a professional racing driver who's, who's in a race car maybe five or six days a week, uh, when they're manually heel and toe downshifting, blipping the throttle with the heel of their right foot, that almost guarantees there's still going to be a reduction in brake pressure. It's, it's impossible to uh, modulate the brake pressure perfectly while blipping the throttle. So do you see an advantage in shorter braking distances, uh, higher braking forces by being able to just solely concentrate on braking? Yeah, I mean, just taking your mind off doing other things is really what helps. And like we, we do up to three Gs in braking. 
So I don't think if I was actually, you know, having to concentrate on blipping, shifting, and braking, I'd be able to do something like that. Three Gs is an amazing amount of braking force. Now, obviously, the aero has a, an element to play into this, which we'll again still talk about. Uh, are you running an ABS package in this car, or is it again just a, a, a non ABS mechanical system? Yeah, it's a Bosch Motorsports ABS. How pivotal has that been in, in getting results out of the car? I think it's one of the best changes I've made to the car. That, that upgrade alone dropped so much time off just laps in general and being able to concentrate, knowing your brakes are going to be there is massive confidence to a driver to, to drive into the braking zone and push yourself an extra 100 yards further than you typically would, knowing that you, know, you have such a great ABS package in the car. Now that Bosch ABS system has driver control, I, I forget, I think maybe 11 or 12 different positions. Yep. You know, how, how much variation do you need and can you give us some insight into what those different settings actually do to the performance of the ABS? Is it a case of you find the sweet spot and then for a dry track, that's it, never touch it? Yeah, so typically for dry, I might make one change and it's only to, to disengage ABS more. But yeah, typically what you're doing with the knob is you're either engaging it more or disengaging it. And uh, I typically run it around the seven or eight, which is on the drier side. And I found that even in the wet, it actually, when it's not engaging as much, it, it helps. There's the, the wetter settings of ABS coming in uh, more, and that's actually hindered my braking ability. Does the, the Bosch Motorsport ABS require a change in the, the driving style if you as a driver were more used to a conventional pedal box with no ABS and you're sort of modulating on that sort of point of lockup? Yeah, what, what's the difference in driving style? It's tough to say. I would say a little bit, yes, but it just was so second nature, you know, just to, to get in there. It worked so well right off the start. And then after that point, just trust it every single time. Okay, let's move on to, to the bodywork. And, and again, I've sort of mentioned the, the aero element. And as I understand it, the, the aero that's on the car now is a reasonably new addition. Can you tell us about your relationship with Versus Engineering there to develop that? Yeah, so Varys and I uh, got together uh, in the winter of last year. And we 3D scanned the car, kind of worked on an aero package uh, in CAD and you know worked on what we wanted and, and where, where the car could better. The car is really draggy with the last aero package I had. And so that was the main factor that I wanted was like less drag, more aero, right? More downforce. So just what everyone what wants. What everybody wants, right? But Virus actually delivered. We did shave off some drag on the car and we were able to produce more efficient downforce as well. So we got the underside of the car working where before, like last year, I, I didn't have any underbody uh, aero work done. And then we also, you know, added their, their wing on the car and then we designed a new front element. So I, I clearly I'm not an aerodynamicist, so I don't want to speak out of turn here, but my, my broad understanding is that uh, the underbody, so the flow from the splitter at the front of the car, the flat underbody, and then most importantly into the diffuser, it's kind of giving you the downforce with a, a really small increase in drag compared to uh, the likes of the rear wing, for example. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, it's trying to, it doesn't have the penalties of drag, right? So you, you're getting all the, the benefits without the, the penalties and Although there's some that are in there, it's, it's mainly where you want the car to work the most. In terms of adjusting or dialing in that aero for your personal preference, getting the, the balance correct, you know, how hard is that? How, how much work did it take to sort of find the operating envelope for it? And do you find yourself needing to make changes based on the specific track that you're at? Oh yeah, no, I'm still have, I still haven't found it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a give and take and it's, it's kind of a a chore to really get it where that it's it's happy you know um all, you can have all this arrow that you want but if you if it's not working 
and the car, the suspension, everything's not in harmony, it means nothing. So this whole year has really been developing the car, different spring rates, uh, adjusting aero, ride height, stuff like that. Tires play a huge role in it as well, pressures. So it's just a, it's a give and take. You just have to find, and I'm still balancing that out right now. What we see with a lot of the really high downforce cars that compete at the likes of World Time Attack in Australia is that getting that balance between mechanical grip in the slower corners where the aero is ineffective and then keeping the car physically off the ground at the likes of the high speed straights, maybe 250 plus kilometres an hour, that's quite challenging. Teams are using packers in the suspension, actually relying on the bump stops and tuning the way the car runs down onto the bump stops to keep the car off the ground. Are you doing any of that? Has that become a problem or is the downforce you're creating not enough to be in that, that realm? Oh no, we're definitely uh, digging ourselves a hole into the ground. Yeah, it's anything over 150 mile an hour, we ended up you know, connecting with the, the surface of the road. So right now we're running a 3,000 pound bump spring and a 1,800 pound initial spring with about a quarter inch of air gap in between. And even so, when we get to 170, 180, the car is riding on the ground. Are you using anything in terms of uh, shock travel sensors, laser ride height sensors to help you with tuning, tuning that element? Yeah, I'm not yet. It's just an upgrade in the winter. You know, everything, every year I make changes and develop the car more and more. And that's on the list for this year. Okay, so as well as that, let us know what is in store for the car over winter. What other changes have you got planned? So for one, shave some weight. We added a little bit of weight uh, throughout the year just to help better the car. So that's a major one for me. Uh, uh, what's our weight at the moment? 29.50 right now. Hoping to get it back to 28 or slightly under. And then just better the aero slightly. I made all this aero besides the rear wing myself. So it's not made to its full potential and, and there's some little imperfections. Just talking about that, when you're working with a com company like Veris, the, are they giving you designs and then it's up to you to, to figure out how you're going to actually create that product and get it on the car? Yep. Or can you go one step further if the budget allows, will they actually make the finished product for you? Yeah, if the budget allows, then yes, then they will make it for you. Unfortunately, my budget didn't allow, so I had to go and use a, a mold that one of my friends had and kind of build off of that and then recreate it. Uh, they 3D printed me the whole front of the front element. So that's all 3D printed. Then I wrapped it in carbon as well. So for the winter, I want to remake this out of a mold and then make it its own proper one-piece splitter. I can assume that the 3D printing would be a, a relatively quick and cost-effective way of making the product, but quite heavy. Would that be right? It was a little heavy. Um, luckily, it was literally just the front two inches that wrapped the entire splitter. And then, you know, I just molded that into the, the splitter that I made and then wrapped it in carbon. So it, it helped actually with strength because it, it kind of built it up some as well. So besides that, uh, switching to paddle shift as well is a, a big one for us. Uh, right now, I'm still lever pull. So, you know, mid corners, I might have to hold an RPM and not accelerate. So that will equate to, you know, being able to shift, continue acceleration, you know, faster lap times, working on suspension, as I mentioned, like we've yet to find the perfect combination of how, you know, to keep the car off the ground uh, and the proper rates. So, um, you know, just little things like that. Lastly, I want to talk about the body. Clearly, it looks like it's a carbon fiber body. Is it full carbon fiber? This isn't just a, a wrap. Was this a, a weight saving or an aesthetics thing? Yeah, no, it's full carbon fiber body. Uh, Anderson Composite makes all these panels. And so we switched from the factory Z06 panels onto this and it saved 40 pounds off the car. That's a significant saving. Yeah, I mean, when you've already found everything, you know, and you're like, where can I find more more weight? 
I mean, we're looking for ounces and, you know, we'd be beyond pounds and to find that much weight is, is crazy. Yeah, unfortunately, it's one of those races with diminishing returns. The, the more you remove, the harder it is to remove more weight. And unfortunately, of course, the more expensive it gets. Yeah. It's been great to get a, a little bit more of a rundown or insight into what makes the car go. Certainly, it, it is a really impressive package. You've Thank got you. it dialed in and uh, the track records say that it's working well. Look forward to seeing what you've got in store for the car next season after it rolls out after winter. Thanks awesome. for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to leave us a review on whatever platform you've chosen to listen to it on. It goes a long way to helping us get the word out there. All these conversations and much more are also available in full on our High Performance Academy YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe.